So today we start with a challenge, one that you may well have heard before, but let's just go with it. A father and his son are involved in a horrific car crash and the man died at the scene. But when the child arrived at the hospital and was rushed into the operating theatre, the surgeon pulled away and said, I can't operate on this boy. He's my son. So the question is, how can this be? Have you worked it out yet? The answer? Well, this story, it's called The Surgeon's Dilemma, is often used to demonstrate the way that unconscious bias works. Of course, the surgeon is the boy's mother. Today's episode is all about this and why it's having such an impact in our working world. But more importantly, what's being done to help overcome it and why it is so significant. Kate Glazebrook is my special guest. You may remember she was recommended by my previous guest, Adam Milgram, who told us about the incredible impact that she's having in business. Her company, Applied, has designed software to help us truly find the best person for the job. And with that, it enables workforces to be more diverse, more interesting, and inevitably more successful. I'm James Lush, and this is Purpose and Vision. You're listening to Purpose and Vision, the podcast that digs deep into why and how companies are making a greater impact in our world by focusing on profit and purpose. This is the podcast that tells the stories and inspires us all to think differently about business today. Like many people probably who are listening, it gets a bit tiring reading story after story of realising that the world tends to treat people differently based on their skin colour or their gender or other circumstances about themselves. And uh, I fell into this area of research where, you know, economists and psychologists have been running experiments where they sent exactly equivalent CVs and resumes out to employers and measured their being huge differences in the rates at which candidates were called back for interview based purely on their name. Uh, In fact, sort of evidence suggests that people with non-quote white or Anglo-Saxon sounding names in the United States need five years more of job experience to get the same rate of callback for interview, even when they've had the same education, the same work history, exactly the same grades. Um, And, you know, having spent all of these years in social mobility and thinking about, you know, how do we get education uh, access more widely available to all students regardless of their background, I realised you can do all you want with education systems and then people will still find themselves in job markets that will discriminate against them. Um, And so when I was working for the Behavioural Insights team uh, in the United States, in the United Kingdom, I sort of started playing around with different types of experiments in the area of how do you remove the bias from those hiring decisions. And that was really all where it began about six years ago. Fantastic. So let's just break that down a bit. I want to start, first of all, with the, the, the term unconscious bias, which I think has moved up the, the, the ladder of importance in our conversations over the last few years. But how would you define it when people ask you about it? Well, it's sort of basically the parts of the brain that misfire might be a way of sort of bluntly referring to it. Unconscious bias is usually the result of heuristics, um, things that our brain does to make sense of a big and complex world uh, where we take thousands of decisions in our everyday, many of them we don't know we're taking. That's the point of it. Uh, Our brains are designed to be incredibly efficient decision makers um, and very few decisions we take actively. Uh, And so a lot of the decisions we take, our brain sort of 
sort of make some quick decisions off the back of things we've done previously, things we've seen in the world. And that's often, you know, a really surefire way of making a quick decision. But occasionally that really leads us down the wrong path and particularly when it comes to thinking about other people. So let me take a very quick example. If, if you were reading a piece of um, news and someone referred to a CEO and then they referred to the pronoun she, it's very likely um, that you, I certainly know this still happens to me, even though I was a female Mm. CEO, Mm. a little part of my brain does that, ooh, um, that kind of like, oh, that's not quite where my brain had assumed that sentence was going to go. Uh, And that happens all the time. And in fact, many of us might have experienced that um, nowadays a lot of management books, for example, are increasingly intending to use more diverse pronouns in the ways that they write about case studies of senior decision makers. And even I fall into the trap of finding that sort of somewhat sort of unconsciously surprising. So a lot of what the brain does is is it tries to make sense of this complex world around us. Um, but unconscious bias is instances where those sort of mental heuristics, which are built up from our experience of a world which frankly is biased. Uh, There are, you know, twice as many CEOs in the UK called Steve than there are women uh, in the FTSE 100. So this is a world that sees radically different outcomes for people by gender and ethnicity and all sorts of other demographic backgrounds. We absorb that world around us. Um, We absorb it without thinking about it. And sometimes that shapes the expectations we have of others. Uh, And that's the sort of stuff that Mm. we genuinely believe as behavioural scientists We can rail against it all we like. We can bemoan it. We can say it's a terrible outcome. But none of those things are going to change the outcomes that we see. And and we really think as behavioralists about changing the environment in which people make decisions rather than trying to change people Mm. themselves. It's fascinating, isn't it, when you start to learn more about what we do as human beings. As you say, we do it because it makes good sense for us with our computer brain that doesn't want to have to process everything every time for the first time. So you make these generalizations. And of course, we've got lazy. We've just got into the habit of doing certain things. But isn't it fascinating? Here you are working in this space. You're absolutely, totally programmed to think about it. And still, as you said, you're still making the mistake. So it explains, I mean, it really does explain why this is such a difficult space. Absolutely. And I think, you know, a really important part of being a behavioural scientist is starting from the assumption that you are, you may have more knowledge, but you definitely have no greater degree of psychological enlightenment. Um, And in fact, uh, for anyone who has ever sort of read or come across the work of Danny Kahneman, who was famously or is famously the the first non-economist to win the Nobel Prize in economics, um, largely for his work bringing together this field of behavioural science and um, and psychology into the world of economics. Um, and he is sort of sort of first and foremost, he's been working on this for 80 years. He's one of the world's sort of grandfathers of the field. And he would say up till this day that he is no less biased than he was before he started learning about it. Um, and I think that's a really important thing to keep top of yes. mind um, because the, the point we're most interested in here is not about saying that there are unbiased great people over here and then these terrible biased people over there and they need something done to them. That's just really not how it works. Or even if that's a way you want to think about the world, you'll just have no real impact on the things that we truly care about. In fact, I very much fall prey to all of those biases, all the sort of present bias, all the confirmation bias, etc. I just try and spend a bit more of my time designing my environment around me to stop me falling into those traps, mm, mm. not that I ever expect to be fully re- unleashed or released from them. Let's now look at 
why that is so significant in particular in the workplace because the, the whole conversation obviously is around the, the purpose and the vision and, and in particular as companies start to explore more around purpose they want to create the best environment for their workers they want to be the most successful that they can be but do the right thing and and diversity has become something of real importance to a lot of companies and yet probably before talking to people like you they would have jumped in and started employing people based on who and what they thought would be best. How do you address that? How do you make sure that the company that is trying to find A, B, and C to fill these particular spots actually gets the best person for the job, not someone that they thought might be best? Well, you know, it's interesting the way you frame that, James, because that's it's so simple the way you've said that, which is, and it's, it's very close to our mission actually at Applied, which is the company that I co-founded um, and our mission is to find the best person for the job regardless of their background. And I think actually if you go to most people working in HR or in recruitment or running an organisation where they hire people, they say that's exactly what they're trying to do. You know, no one really can contest the mission there. It seems so blindingly simple. And it's where we started as well when we started thinking about this problem. But we knew from these studies that I sort of alluded to earlier that, you know, we've seen for about the last 45 years that people have been running these studies where they send out equivalent CVs and see the statistically significant differences in the rate at which minority and majority people are hired into the same job with the same background based purely on things like their name or where they live um, or other kinds of signifiers of their kind of background. And so we knew that even though this is the intention of people, something's falling away. Uh, and so what we started to do, this is, goes back about six years, we spent about a year, a year and a half running experiments on how might we change the environment in which you take that decision. So quite literally, if you were think about it from an app that you might use in your day-to-day -day life, how is that app designed to help you make the best decision rather than the kind of decision where you're inadvertently going to be continually to, to select people who look like you, which is typically what we do, right? We typically you know, build rapport faster and easier with people who are like us. They share the same kind of background. They think similarly. They communicate in a similar kind of way. And in one sense, they also feel like a sort of safe bet. Mm. Um, and so that kind of affinity bias is also this really important piece uh, in the way in which we understand people in our lives. Uh, so what we started to do was think about what are the different kinds of ways we could shake up that decision environment. And the first and most obvious thing that we thought about was we could just take off names. So all of these studies had been done that showed that knowing that James's name is James has some underlying connotation for me, positive or negative. But either way, you being called James tells me nothing about how great you'll be as a journalist, how great you'll be as a podcast presenter, all of those things. I just it's it's extraneous to the information that I need to make a decision about whether you're great for the job. And if we know that it might have connotations, positive or negative, I can remove it and I can essentially remove what you might think of as noise in the decision-making process. Mm -hmm. So we have relevant information. So we were the first platform in the world to anonymize candidate applications. So we removed not only first and last name, but in fact, all signifiers of the candidate. Um, and that was a sort of important first move, um, but we felt like we could do a lot more from there. Um, and so we started playing around with other things that might influence the decision-making process, including things like, do people make different decisions about the same candidate if they see them in the morning versus the afternoon? So would we evaluate a candidate differently if they were the first candidate we'd seen or they were the 72nd candidate mm -hmm. that we'd seen? 
And, you know, you, you chuckle because I think you kind of know where I'm going with this, which is, yeah, <laughs> we found very strong statistical evidence that suggests that these strange contextual factors, like the order that a candidate appears in a group of candidates, predicts how good you think they are, even though it has no relationship to how good they are. So we found that people tend to be more generous with the first few candidates that come to them, and they become progressively harsher with their evaluations of candidates as they get through a larger and larger list of candidates. So effectively, it's like it's just become harder to impress over time or you become yeah. tired or hungry or bored or all kinds of things. Mm. Um, and that has one of the well, that was one of the big effects we saw. Uh, and I often think about this, you know, for people whose surnames start um, sort of at the back end of the of the alphabet. Uh, I think statistically, all of the evidence that we've sh we've been able to garner suggests that they've absolutely deserved every job they've ever gone for in their lives. Because most hiring processes, in an effort to be quote unquote fair, will often order candidates by, you know, the alphabet of the surname, because that feels like, well, I'm not preferencing any one group over another. Yeah. If your surname starts with Z, you're always that unlucky candidate seeing the 72nd. <laughs> that is so interesting. And I think maybe people listening to this will say, well, it's not really surprising. It's just what you've done is you've drawn it to our attention and uh, we can now start to do something about it. But I've I've seen many examples of, um, uh, for example, you know, again using the alphabet, how those at the beginning of you know, you know the beginning of the alphabet have fared much better with with all sorts with with school results with getting mm -hmm. into college, and we don't really think about it until suddenly all these statistics come out like this. Absolutely. And, you know, we actually, that was only one of the experiments. We actually ran another one where we looked at whether or not your evaluation of somebody is um, in any way affected by the evaluation you just gave to another person. Um, and so, you know, in the behavioral science literature, there's this whole concept of framing effects. If I tell you 72 and then ask you to pick a number, you're more likely to pick a number close to 72. If I gave you the number 21, however, you'd be more likely to pick a number close to 21. And that's this sort of referencing effects or these sort of framing effects that yeah. I've given you. I've primed you to think about a particular thing. And actually, we found in our evaluations that something of the reverse was happening. So if I see a candidate that I think is fantastic and I've given them a 10 out of 10 or equivalent, the next candidate that comes by better be bloody good because statistically I'm more likely to be harsh on them because I have this new high watermark. I just yeah, saw you can't go James. <laughs> yeah, you can't go higher. And James was so amazing yeah. that I'm no longer evaluating candidate you know, two against some fair judgment. I'm evaluating them against James. Right. But if I'd seen some other person, Kate, who wasn't very good, uh, the next person that comes by is like, oh, thank gosh, they know what they're talking about. So and I'm actually kinder. So they get so we lifted. Found all Exactly. So we found all of these crazy effects, which might not be the kind of headline grabbing sort of behavioral biases that we read about, right? Like it doesn't necessarily correlate with being harsher on women or men. What we found, though, was that there are all these contextual factors that influence our decision making processes, which goes to the heart really of behavioral science and actually tells you nothing about the quality of those candidates, but tells you everything about the environment in which people are making decisions. And so we then started from this premise of like, okay, well, it's all good and well to sort of say something that's quirky about how the brain works, but how do you actually then account for that? People need to be making better decisions, so what would we do? And so that led us down a path of building a bunch of features into a technology platform 
that could effectively take us as we are. So rather than saying, James, be kind to that 72nd candidate, which, by the way, is hard to keep top of mind and Mm. you're not going to remember that every other time you see a candidate, we thought, well, why don't we redesign the environment so you don't even have to think about it? So what we do as one of the features in our platform is we randomise candidate applications. Actually, we chunk them up in small pieces. So parts of different candidate applications are seen at the beginning, the middle and the end for lots of different people and everyone has a fair shot so that you could be first, you could be middle, you could be last in different parts of your application so you're not influenced um, disproportionately by these kinds of effects and you're certainly not always being seen after this, you know, stellar 10 out of 10 James candidate who Mm, was really amazing. mm. Very nice. And you have obviously got to the stage now where you think, and I say you think you've, you've, got it pretty okay but i i'd I'd imagine that this is continually evolving because something else suddenly springs up you go we missed that as well yeah unfortunately once you start on this path you can never really stop um it is absolutely true james so we we ran these experiments sort of for a year a year and a half and it's sort of you know, because we cared about being able to prove the social impact of what we were doing. In fact, that was a prerequisite to even building a platform was there's no point knowing that these things exist. And certainly, frankly, the world doesn't need another HR platform. There's hundreds of them that are out there. But in fact, none of them were doing any of the things that we felt really tackled these big problems, which is really fundamentally helped organisations to select from the widest possible talent pool and address some of the the losses that they have from having very homogenous workforces. And it's sort of worth kind of stepping into very very quickly, if we may, like why it is that it matters to have diverse teams, because a lot of people sort of nod and smile, but it's worth sort of tackling the, the real reason. And apart from I'm personally very driven by the the sort of social good behind that and I genuinely believe that everyone should have equal opportunity in the world. But even if you didn't and you were a cold, hard capitalist about this problem, you would still care about having diverse teams because another whole wing of research points to the kinds of innovation benefits of having diverse teams. And it largely stems from, you know, you solve problems more effectively and more sustainably if you have people challenging assumptions at the get-go. And if everybody thinks the same, by definition, you might fall into the same kinds of assumption traps. Uh, If I work with people who are very like me, no one's the one saying, I'm not sure I don't see it that way. Mm. I'm not sure that will play out that same way in my community or that has a different connotation in the world in which I come. And so that may play out differently. So there's loads of evidence around why diverse teams tend to perform better um, and even crazy studies that show that more diverse juries are more likely to accurately remember um, the kind of facts of a case. So it goes deep, actually, the kind of power of diversity beyond what you know is good enough, by the way, which is just that we should live in a world where everyone has equal opportunity. You've um, you've got some amazing statistics, and I think one of the things that springs to mind from all this is that you've got the evidence to back this up. Tell me about some of those startling headlines that came from your first few years in this, as you as you developed the software and you developed the business. Sure. So I guess, as I alluded to, we ran all of these sort of individual experiments, so lots of different things um, to test these sort of context effects. We ran studies that show whether one person can beat a crowd in making an estimation about a candidate, which, by the way, they can't. You know, there is a true wisdom of crowds. Um, And after we'd sort of run all of these individual experiments, we then thought about, well, how do you tackle that? What are the kinds of so what's from a product standpoint? You know, if you think about it from an app standpoint, 
that shapes where the buttons go and why they're shaped, why they're in that order and all that sort of stuff. We also ran a whole bunch of experiments looking at even at the level of what candidates are being assessed on. And it sort of comes back to this question that you raised, James, about, you know, how do I select the best person for the job regardless of their background? Uh, and we realised that we could do lots to experiment with the way you would look at candidates. But if we weren't also tackling what you look at about a candidate, then we were only going part of the way there. Uh, and so we then delved into another area of research, which was all around what is actually predictive of job performance. So if I was trying to find someone to be a junior researcher for you, James, you know, what are the kinds of skill sets that that person needs to be great at to really excel at that job? Um, and we found that actually, though we have this history of relying on CVs and resumes, it turns out actually they're not very predictive of job performance. Right. Um, so we tend to over-rely on things like where you went to school and places that you've worked in your job titles. But actually, the skills that you've learnt um, can come from lots of different places. Mm -hmm. And I think increasingly we're realising this as people have more sort of portfolio-style careers. Um, they are not one job. Um, but also people are acquiring skills in unusual places. Um, and so what we actually ended up doing is going to the research on what is most predictive of job performance and deciding to test candidates on that, not their CVs. Uh, and largely what that looks like is actually testing candidates on tasks that they do in the job. Um, so if we were hiring for your researcher, we might say, well, actually being a great researcher, in fact, tell me, what are the kinds of skills you think make a great researcher? They've got to have the initiative. They've got to work out maybe, you know, that person could be the obvious one, but would there be someone maybe more interesting if you take a left turn or a right turn or they've got some sort of uh, journalistic qualities or they can spot a story, anything like that, instincts for it, I suppose. Exactly. And so the kinds of things that we might then, if we were to help you to hire your junior researcher, James, we would say, okay, well, what does that, what does that look like? What's a day or a week in the life of being a junior researcher? Mm -hmm. And what are the kinds of skill sets associated with that? And we're going to actually get candidates to do short answers to real world tasks that they might have. So that might be, uh, you know, pitch two ideas for things you think I might have overlooked for this podcast mm. or find me five people you think we should next interview for this podcast or uh, take one of the podcasts and tell me how you would re-edit it to make it even better. Yeah. Um, so they may be the kinds of things yeah. that a real person yeah. needs to do. And so in through the applied platform, candidates aren't submitting CVs. They're actually answering real-world questions that are much more predictive and they're also less biased because, by definition, I don't care where you learnt how to yeah. re-edit a story. It might have been because you were previously a you know, student researcher. It might have been because you've actually done a lot of content and marketing work, perhaps, mm. and that's actually a skill set that you've built, developed there. All I really care about is that you have that skill and I can tell that through the way you've responded to it. So we take these candidate answers and then we put it through this de-biased sifting tool, which takes the names off and chunks them up in this particular way and anonymizes them, et cetera. Uh, and then we're able to then pop out with a really, really rich data set, um, which you've generated. So it's not AI-based. So you're still scoring yeah. those candidates, yeah. but you're doing it based on only the information that's relevant. And then from there, you can then interview using a structured way, taking those same principles through the interview process and make a hiring decision. And so we built this platform to do all of those things because we wanted to make it not only less biased, but also more predictive of finding people stay and thrive. But 
uh, we didn't really trust that we got it right because <laughs> you can do lots of individual things that you think point in the right direction and you can even put statistics behind them. But it's only when you put the whole puzzle piece together that you really know whether it's worked. And so about four and a half years ago, we ran a really large experiment with about 700 real candidates who applied to a real set of graduate jobs. We put them through our process and in parallel, we also put them through a typical hiring process which had their CVs being sifted for the kinds of things we might ordinarily have looked at them for. And they went through all of these sort of hiring stages and we discovered at the end of that process that 60% of the candidates that got hired wouldn't have been hired except for the de-biased mm. um, mm. process and that that group of candidates was more likely to come from a diverse set of backgrounds. So. Uh, statistically more likely to come from a background with a disability, from lower socioeconomic or socioeducational backgrounds, so different schools, different university degrees, if at all. And they were, you know, directionally more likely to come from more ethnically diverse backgrounds. Um, and that was the really the moment when we decided that this needed to be more than our uh, evening job, which it was up until that point, yeah, yeah. Um, to doing to doing it full time. And we felt like if that's something that scales. Um, all of a sudden there's this real opportunity we felt to help organisations and to help individuals to have their talent and their potential realised. Fantastic. And then you realise, oh, I'm going to have to commit to this. This was just a little sort of, <laughs> a little quirky interest I had. Now I'm going to make something of it. And, of course, it has grown enormously. We will come on to that in just a second. I just want to look at some of those stats as well because they are fascinating that um, those people who've got the job through your software 60 percent have gone to women or people who identify as non-binary so that was one thing uh 25 percent have gone to people who identify as black asian mixed or other at six percent have gone to people who declare a disability are, are you saying that all these statistics these probably wouldn't have been employed without this well we were saying that over about over half of those would have been overlooked for those jobs okay. yeah. yeah um which is pretty sizable when it, you start to scale it over the 360,000 candidates that have now come through the platform ex exactly and and this is the key what 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 have those employers gone on to say as a result of this well how have they improved because i think that's obviously what people will be looking for what big difference has it made to their organizations as a result of having this yeah, so, I mean, you, you raise a great point. I think one of the things that we have always been quite careful about is, one, that we're a kind of pan-demography uh, platform. So there are a lot of platforms out there that focus just on one dimension of diversity, and that's fantastic, but we've always been interested in all. So we collect data about seven different dimensions of diversity, gender, age, uh, ethnic background, uh, whether your parents went to university as a proxy of educational background and socio-educational background. We also do um, sexual orientation uh, and disability status and social family wealth. Um, so those kinds of how it's played out in organisations, what's quite interesting is those kinds of outcomes look quite different based on which organisation you work with because, in effect, the kind of way I'm thinking about it is Organisations have different biases, right? So we work with organisations across public sector, NGO, private sector, small startups and fast-growing startups all mm. the way up to big corporates. And they all have different orientations, right? So we're lucky enough to work with some big um, publishers, for example, like Penguin Random House uh, in the UK has used our platform for a number of years. And one of their challenges is actually around socio-educational background. Um, they actually hire a lot more women than they do men. And so one of their challenges was actually to bring more men into the organisation, um, but also to bring people who had come from backgrounds that weren't all 
um, didn't all have access to, you know, high levels of education. Uh, and so what we've seen for them is actually big rises in kind of the other dimensions of diversity than the ones you'd normally think about. Whereas for some of our other tech startups, for example, who naturally lean toward having more, many more men, um, that's one of the big challenges of tech. We've seen that something like 40% of candidates hired into technology jobs in the UK have gone to women, which is about twice as high as you might expect based on kind of population averages. So the kind of impact of it really depends in some senses on where your problems lie because effectively we're just levelling the playing field or yeah. the best possible way we know how we're levelling that playing field. Um, but I did a big piece of research last year looking at all of our STEM jobs. So these are sort of science, technology, engineering, medicine and um, mathematics uh, across different organisations. And we found that um, we had sort of seen a two to four times increase in the rate at which ethnically diverse candidates in particular were hired into those jobs. Uh, and that was a really big uh, area that we wanted to kind of work on because for all the reasons that we've talked about before about diverse teams, you know, frankly, it's the technologists of today that will design the world that we live in today and tomorrow. Mm. And if we have very non-diverse people uh, or people from non-diverse backgrounds who are designing those technologies, then we run the risk that we will be designing for a very small subset of the yeah. population. Um, and not only people will be missed out, but also opportunities to sort of um, level up will be missed out as well. So we feel like actually that's a really important sort of upstream challenge to help organisations work with is the sort of uh, innovators and mm. technologists of the future. So many interesting things to explore. You, you mentioned publishing, you know, for example. I mean, I can think of many jobs where if I said that job, anyone listening to this would be able to picture the people that work there. You mentioned tech startups. I can almost picture mm. the kind of characters. I, I was thinking of PR firms. Again, people would think of the kind yeah. of the, 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 the people there. Yeah. Are you, with this software, effectively rebooting it? So, in other words, by doing this, you reboot that organisation. So, suddenly, in the publishing world, there are more males to accompany the, the very female-dominant workforce. Are you, in doing that, then making it right from then on, or will it continually need to have this kind of software running through it? Excellent question, James, and I think you allude to two things. One is, I mean, organisations are always hiring, so it's true that you can't just do it once and then, you know, forget about it and return to your old ways. It's certainly the case that this needs to be the tool that you use, the way that we've become accustomed to using all kinds of tools on our sort of um, technology stack. Uh, we certainly think that, yes, we can have some sort of demonstration effect for people. Certainly we get this a lot. People say, oh, my gosh, this is the first person we hired. They're not like anyone else we've ever hired and they're amazing yeah. um, for this job. And you certainly get that kind of psychological boost. I think you get that kind of demystification that it happens in the real world. But we're also realistic about the world, you know, that hiring one person that was different than anyone ever, you've ever worked with is not going to rewire the brain uh, in and of itself. In fact, that's the whole point is we should design these technologies to work when we're not even thinking about them. So one is I think it is true that we believe it's a tool that you should continue to use for your hiring. But I think what you're alluding to as well, James, is is the other pieces of the puzzle. So we are but a hiring technology and we believe we hope to help organisations. We have the stats to suggest that we are, in fact, helping organisations to hire more diversely. But people's experience of work is much more than just how they got hired, right? Um, and there is another whole area of research that points to the fact that people from underrepresented groups are also statistically more likely to leave organisations, um, 
so have lower levels of retention. And there can be lots of different reasons for that. Some of that is that they feel that they don't belong in that organisation and that they're not supported. Others might be that they their managers fail to see their potential and for part of the reason we described earlier about affinity bias, they inadvertently invest more in people that are like them, their junior staff members that are like them. So we feel like there are a couple of things we can try to support through a hiring process that's more fair that involves the team that's really important we we deliberately don't use AI as the tool that that drives that diversity for a variety of reasons um, both technological but also um, qualitative we actually believe that James actively being involved in who he hires as his next researcher is an important part of him feeling ownership over that person arriving and being successful um, so that person walking in on day one feels like I was the mo most meritorious person for this job and James goes, gosh, you must have been because I was involved in that and I saw you yeah. get flying colours the whole way yeah. through yeah. and that that actually psychologically sets people up for a more successful um, sort of manager-managee relationship. But that's, you know, that's only a part of the puzzle and I think, you know, we would look to work with other technologies and in fact do to try and make sure that people's experience of work is also made um, as inclusive as possible and that they can feel a sense of belonging. We have some evidence to suggest, even in the absence of that, that we we might be helping. Um, so we did a bunch of studies looking at retention of the candidates hired through our platform and found that the first year retention rate was about 94%. Um, so 94% of people hired through our platform are still in that job or right. in that same organisation a year later. Um, which is much higher than than the kind of average across the economy, which is yeah. usually about 81, 82%. So some of that seems to be working, um, but I still think there's a lot more we can be doing in organisations to make them really work for everyone. And we are but a piece of that puzzle. I, yeah, it's it's work in progress, but my goodness, a lot has happened in a very short time, which is great. I I can see your passion for the for the behavioural science aspect of it. I can see where your roots lie, and, and the fact that you kind of want to keep on doing these studies in your bunker. I'm going to try this. I'm going to experiment yeah. with this. <laughs> but I do love that inquisitive mind that you've got, and I'm just really interested in 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 talking about how it's bettering a company because this is what this whole conversation is around as we talk on purpose and vision it's around it's around making a fantastic company that's not necessarily making squillions of dollars of profit but it's a great place to work and it's doing something important yeah absolutely and i think you know it's it's the case that we work with organizations and they come to us with lots and lots of different challenges um and i think one of the things that's really just extraordinary to watch is, you know, even how this debate has changed, or not debate, I mean, it ceased to be a debate in a lot of parts of the economy about whether or not we even need to care about diversity in teams. And I think in the last six or six and a half years since we started speaking to organisations, I mean, it started out six and a half years ago very like this conversation, which was, you know, we would walk into an organisation and we'd say there's such a thing as unconscious bias and we think that it might be part of the reason why your organisation uh, is not benefiting from the full talent pool and here are the kind of losses to your organisation and that's just not happening anymore. I mean, organisations come to us saying, I've read books on unconscious bias, I'm certain, I either know because I've done my own analysis that we have bias in our hiring process because um, I can see diverse candidates dropping out at this disproportionate rate or I'm pretty sure there is, can you help? Um, and that's happened very quickly. Um, that's pushed along by an immense amount of important work by activists and social change agents all over. Um, 
the economy, obviously things like Black Lives Matter drew that really to people's attention. Um, but organisations are struggling. Uh, there's a lot to take in. There's a lot more expected, I think, of workplaces now than ever before, uh, and rightly so. But there's, you know, probably a long way we have to go before. I wouldn't suggest that one technology solution is going to get us there. I think we're going to need an ecosystem to change. And I hope that, you know, this is the sort of grandiosity of a founder. Uh, you'll, I hope you'll forgive me, but I hope that where we are is that that inquisitiveness and that curiosity that we feel in our team um, is the sort of thing that we can inspire in other teams that build technologies because it's it's going to take many, many parts of this sort of ecosystem to really tackle all the different parts that are affecting people's experience of work. I want to um, just end by asking you to forward me to the next person that I should be speaking to, someone that you feel in, in, in our working world is making some huge strides with regards to doing the right thing, you know, doing the right thing and being successful in that regard, um, just like we've done with all our previous talkers. Um, Kate, where should we go? James, this was so hard. There are so many people I would love um, to put you in touch with, but I think I've ultimately settled on this phenomenal woman called Thea Snow. Uh, she's just recently returned to Australia from the UK. Uh, she works for an organisation called the Centre for Public Impact and does a lot of fantastic work with governments and other NGOs on thinking about how they really challenge the way that they work and deliver services differently and better um, for individuals. And one of the dimensions of her work, which I hope she'll share a little bit with you, is she's done, um, she actually won a, she probably won't tell you this, but she won a university medal in, in the UK on her work on how people interact with AI systems and in particular how uh, social workers use AI or don't in the way that they deliver services to the most at-risk children. Um, and she's done a lot of work on thinking about how artificial intelligence can be brought uh, into a space where it's confronting really big questions around human dignity. How do we design these systems that we're frankly going to continue to be relying on uh, and avoid the traps of designing them for only certain groups of people or um, for only certain use cases and actually think about harnessing that technology for good. Uh, so I think she's got a lot of sort of deep knowledge of a lot of things that are very topical and top of mind for people, but also very close to caring about the end sort of beneficiaries in our society and, and how we can kind of design mm. better for them. That's, that's, that's the most important part, isn't it? Actually designing it for an outcome rather than just yeah. sort of getting together as a heap of bureaucrats saying we need to solve this problem. Uh, very interesting. Okay, well, I look forward to conversation with uh, Thea Snow. That'll be next. But um, Kate, where can people find you if they want to get in touch with you? So I'm uh, online. Obviously, um, our company, if you're interested in any of the stuff that we've done, we're really big on publishing the results of all of our studies. So you'll find all of that on our blog uh, online. I'm also on LinkedIn. Um, so feel free to contact me there as well. So your online address is beapplied.com, isn't it? As, exactly. Uh, yeah, and that's where you'll find the blog as well. And Kate Glazebrook on LinkedIn, um, you're easy to find as well. With a Z or a Z, if whichever you want to. Uh, <laughs> Z, Z, Z. <laughs> when you go to America, you have to do the Z, do you? I know. I had to get used to that for a couple of years, but I'm glad to be back in a world where I'm, I'm not using that regularly. <laughs> for sure. Kate, it's been terrific. I really appreciate your time and uh, thank you for, for, for bringing it to our attention so much that we just, you know, completely and utterly just uh, let us in, influence us without us uh, recognising truly what's going on. So, Kate, thank you. Thanks, James. It's been such a pleasure. You've been listening to Purpose and Vision. For more details about this podcast, go to the website purposeandvisionpodcast.com 
or find us on Facebook at Purpose and Vision, on Instagram, purpose.vision, and on Twitter at PurposeVision1. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please tell your friends, and perhaps you'd be kind enough to rate the show. This will help others find it. Just go to where you download your podcast and enter a review. Thank you so much.